Genesis chapter 17 is where we'll be um, this morning. I can remember when I worked in a uh, church as a student pastor, uh, I took a bunch of students to uh, an event, a football game, where we watched the football game, and then we heard like a guest speaker in the middle. It was like Faith and Family Day or something like that at a, at a college in, in here in North Carolina. And uh, we had all the students gathered in this one section of the stadium, and uh, this speaker got up, and he was a former Christian athlete, and he got up and started to speak, and then he told a bunch of stories about his former days playing basketball. And then he um, never referenced scripture, but he asked everyone in the room or at the stadium, if they wanted to be a friend of God, raise their hand. And everybody, of course, raises their hand. And then he said, okay, um, repeat after me. Close your, bow your heads, close your eyes. Everybody repeat after me. And then he led through a prayer that was a, like a sinner's prayer where he asked, everyone's going to be, okay, Lord, I want to be your friend. I confess my sins to you. I give my life to you. And then he had everyone then look at him and say, okay, okay, if you prayed that prayer, now look at me. Uh, if you prayed that prayer, you are a Christian. You are a friend of God. And then he said, uh, now I did that for everyone because I know some of you have already prayed that prayer, but I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anybody. And as a student pastor, I was like, uh-oh, right? Like, we have to deconstruct, like, when we get back, like, I have to walk through, like, what that was, what just happened. Um, and I had a major problem with that, because nowhere in Scripture do we see a response to the gospel like that. Of course, I believe you first have to actually hear the gospel to respond to it. We did not hear the gospel that day. But even if we did, this is still not a biblical response to the gospel. Imagine Peter and Paul standing before the multitude in Jerusalem, the very first church, and he gets up and says, Hey, raise your hand if you want to be a friend of God. Raise your hand if you want to claim, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me, and you can become a professional athlete if you pray this prayer. Let's pray this prayer right now, guys. Raise your hand, close your eyes, bow your heads. Imagine that happened. No, what did they do? They just got up in front of the multitude and they said, repent and believe. Now, I'm hard on this issue because I hear so many over and over again poor presentations and poor responses to the gospel. And most of the time, it's actually both. But sometimes it's either one or the other. Either way, it's unhealthy because it's wrong to confuse multitudes of people into believing something that they actually don't believe in. And America is full of people who think they're believers, but they've never biblically responded to the gospel. And in places where conversion isn't clear, the gospel isn't clear, and vice versa. And here's why. The gospel is free, but it doesn't mean it's cheap. Are you hearing me? The gospel's free, but it doesn't mean it's cheap. Believing that God can save you... requires something of you. It requires faith on your part. And biblically speaking, when you have that faith, it's going to be genuine. It's going to be costly. It's going to be sacrificial. It's going to be life-changing. It's going to be God-honoring. And it's going to show evidence that this faith is real. And this is a pattern that we see throughout the entire Bible when someone follows the Lord. And this is a pattern that we're actually going to see in the life of Abraham this morning. So this morning, Morning, we're going to see the, the kind of faith that Abraham had to trust God, that he would be the father of many nations, and it would not just change his legacy, but this truth would actually change his life. And we're going to see how Abraham knew that for certain. So here's what we've seen so far in this series. Abraham 
is an old man, and he's married to a woman who cannot have a child. God, however, appears to Abraham, and he tells him that he's going to have an offspring, and he's going to be given land. Abraham couldn't afford the land and couldn't foresee an offspring, given that his wife was barren. But he had to trust God and have faith that God is going to somehow miraculously provide these two things. And Abraham, like all of us, at times he had faith and at times he didn't. And what we see in Genesis 16 is a time where he didn't. Instead of believing that God would provide an offspring for he and his wife, Sari, he chose to impregnate a female servant by the name of Hagar. And this is where Abraham takes matters into his own hands rather than trusting that God would provide. And now you have this really dysfunctional situation. You have Abraham... You have Hagar's son named Ishmael, which Genesis 16 says that he's a wild donkey of a man, which in Hebrew, that's Hebrew for he's a brat, all right? Abraham and his wife, uh, they have now Hagar and his child living, and their child together living with them, okay? So you got the mama, the baby mama, right? The wife, the baby mama, and the baby, And the baby's a brat, all together in this house. Now, this is where we pick up in Genesis 17. All that happened in 16, this is where we pick up in 17. So I'm going to read starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. It's very important that you understand what that means. I'll explain in a minute. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but Shall, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly faithful. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after, after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of, of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for the everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So I want you to see this. Lots of time has happened between when God originally told Abraham in chapter 12 of Genesis this promise and between what's happening right now in Genesis 17. In fact, some of 23 years has happened between when God tells Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations, and he has to wait 23 years. Imagine you're already old, and then 23 years, you're you're told this, and you're thinking, okay, any day now, any day now, God's going to provide this promise, and then nothing happens year after year after year, and you you were stuck with waiting. 
Your wife is getting older. Your wife cannot have a child. And you've heard God tell you this over and over, but you can't believe it. 23 years. Imagine where you were 23 years ago. Some of you weren't even born 23 years ago. But suppose those of you who were born 23 years ago, imagine the way you used to think 23 years ago. Imagine the things that you did 23 years ago. Most of you didn't have the internet 23 years ago. That's how much the world has changed. 23 years is a long time. If someone told you that you would receive something, and you're thinking it's going to show up any day, and it doesn't year after year, and then 23 years have gone by, you're starting to believe it's not going to happen. You may have even forgotten it. And that's where Abraham was. But God in his grace appears to Abraham again in Genesis 17 and reminds Abraham of this promise. But this time, it's different. Notice what he says in verse 1. When he shows up, he says, I am God Almighty. The, the Hebrew word for that phrase is, uh, the Hebrew phrase for that is El Shaddai. And there's been some debate on what this word means. Shaddai comes from the root word Shaddad, which means to display power. In other words, God is telling Abraham that he is going to display power in Abraham's life. God is telling Abraham that he is in complete control and he has everything in his hand. And because of that, he is going to require something of Abraham. I'm in complete control. I know this sounds impossible. You're going to see this land you don't have the money to pay for. You're going to have an offspring that you cannot provide for. But I am the Lord Almighty. I am El Shaddai. I'm all-powerful. I'm sovereign and in control of your life, and so you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to have faith. And look at the second part of verse 1. He says, walk before me and be what? Blameless. And blameless means whole. God wanted all of Abraham. He isn't requiring Abraham just to emotionally believe or intellectually believe in a promise. He wants Abraham to give everything in his life to this promise. God is telling Abraham to base his life on this promise. Think about the weight of this. This is all this happened before the church was established. All this happened before we had the Bible. He didn't have a Bible to to trust the promises of God. All this happened before the people of God, the Israelites. All this happened before all of those things. And the way that mankind related to God was through good or bad things that happened to them and where they heard the audible voice of God. If they knew God was real, it's because they saw lightning. If they knew God was real, it's because they were blessed and they knew that they, they prospered. And they said, okay, God must be giving me blessings today. And they didn't have uh, what we have in front of us. They didn't have the church and the gathering and the small group and community and prayer and all these things that build us together and increase our faith. No, all he had to do is wait. What he had to do was wait For God to audibly speak to him or show up in some way in a present form. Meaning a cloud or a a pillar of fire or one of those things. That's that's what he had to to rely on. That's it. He didn't have other believers encouraging him. Hey, you know this is going to happen. I read today in Psalm 83 that that we should have faith. No, he didn't have any of that. And so here he is. He has to wait But God tells him, hey, I want you to walk before me. And he doesn't mean walk ahead of me, like walk with me. Walk in a way that you are honoring me. 
This is the first time that we see that phrase in the Bible where God speaks to a man this way. God is telling Abraham, and this is why people call Abraham a friend of God. God is telling Abraham to really follow him. Which means being a friend of God doesn't mean that the commitment is shallow. No, it's the opposite. God calls him to give up his life and follow him. This is what God does when he calls people to himself. He wants us to base our lives, the entirety of who we are on his promises. This is why when you see later in the New Testament, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's calling them to follow him, he says, take up your cross and follow me. Now, I want you to see this. We as a church have been focusing this year as uh, we want to be a healthy church. We want to continue to grow as a healthy church. And primarily, one of the ways that we want to see that is through uh, having a better culture of evangelism. And, and what I want you to see in this, this truth that we see this morning before us, evangelism isn't just a presentation of the gospel. Evangelism is actually calling people to what Jesus called people to do, which is to give up their lives for the sake of the gospel. And I I tell you that because sometimes if we want to have a better culture of evangelism, we have to understand this because sometimes I think when we share the gospel or even try to disciple people, we, we, we are often afraid to call them to what Jesus would call them to. No, they are required to give up their lives for the gospel. This is not a game, friends. This is not a box to be checked off. Okay, I've got a good family. I've got a good job. I've got my career. I've got my my friendships. I've got my neighborhood. Oh, I need a religion. Let me check off Christianity. And it's a part of this religion. No, it's it's supposed to be everything about your life is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Which means every other category goes underneath that and you say, okay, I'm going to make all of these things, my friendships, my family, my money, my neighborhood, all for the sake of the gospel. And it's going to be, require faith because faith is sacrifice. And that's what Abraham did. And the challenge that we have as a church, this is what's in front of us every single day. Because in America, what we understand Christianity We see many churches and ministries that make it all too easy to follow Christ. The call is very shallow. It's just come to church. Nothing's required of you. You you, you don't have to get in anyone's lives. No no one's going to get in your life. You don't have to really know anyone or, or be known. You don't have to give of yourself or your gifts. Just give your money. We want to make sure you give that part. But other than that, just be quiet, be here, and that's enough. You want to be baptized? We'll make that incredibly easy for you to be baptized. But making it all about the hype, we'll call you to come down front. We won't ask you any questions about whether or not you understand the gospel or whether or not you really become a Christian. We just say, do you believe in Jesus? And nod your head, then we'll dunk you. And everyone is going to cheer for you. And we made the call so weak to follow Christ. No, it's important that people understand the gospel and can communicate the gospel before they're baptized. That's good, right? It's a good thing. So we need to call people to what the gospel calls them to. People in the New Testament times died 
because they wanted to be baptized. The, the church was so persecuted in the New Testament. It was someone to take a step of faith and be baptized. It was literally like putting a mark on their heads for someone to kill them because of their faith. And now when it comes, now even when I try to disciple guys, say, okay, we want to go through scripture together. I want to get to know you. I want to get in your life. Man, I, was just, I don't want to get up early. So when can you meet with me that's not early? No, it's every part of you. It's this dedicated truth. I'm not telling all of you that you need to punish yourself and you make this impossible schedule where you're living your life like a monk. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that your life should display a level of sacrifice because that's the call on what it means to follow the Lord. That's what God called Abraham to. And to make this point clear, he even gives Abraham a new identity by changing his name. He says in verse 5, no longer will your name be Abram, but will be Abraham, father of many. Abram means father. Abraham means father of many. Now, I want you to imagine his name's Abram, and he can't have a child. What's your name? My name's father. Oh, where's your kids? I don't have any. It's a little mean, isn't it? Now, he's father of many. What's your name? Father of many. Imagine being at a dinner party with that guy. Hey, father of many, would you like salt? Father of many, would you like another drink? Father, and all the time he's hearing his name is father of many nations. Over and over again, every time he hears his name, he's reminded of this promise. God is saying, I'm writing this on your life. This is going to be your identity, Abraham. This is what you are going to be known as, so you better trust me that this is going to happen. And this is God showing him, if you give your life to me, it's going to be worth it. Now again, this is going to require sacrifice and trust on Abraham's part. And so we pick up in verse 9, where honestly it gets a little weird, all right? And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be, like, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, do not Google it, all right? Ask a mature and responsible person of the same sex after this service what it is. Just don't ask me, all right? We have five elders who, by the way, love to answer biblical questions, all right? But this is the requirement. This is what he's saying. I want every male... To follow through, believing that this promise, that you're the father of many nations, is real. And, and from this point on, everyone who would follow through with this obedience would be a part of the covenant family of God. That, that's what it was supposed to symbolize. This is what later Jews would adopt and it would be called. This is how we know that we are the people of God. We are part of the physical descendants of Abraham. This is what a family would do. The male would do it for his entire family. And then at a certain age, the young boys would do it as well. To show the patriarch view that we are a part of this 
covenant family that God promised to Abraham. And we're going to see this happen when you pick up in verse 12. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or uh, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought with your, bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, this would be the sacrifice to show that you are a part of God's covenant people. Um, and he, but here's what happens next. God then, from verses 15 all the way down to 21, God changes Sarah's name to Sarah, which means princess. And the purpose is to show, both, by the way, means, um, means princess. And the purpose is to show that God's intent for her was true. A princess is one who gives birth to a king, and that's what actually happens. Now, when God speaks this, the text tells us that Abraham laughs. And ironically, God tells them that they are going to have a child of their own, and this child was to be named Isaac. And Isaac's name means he laughs. God promises that he will establish this covenant with Abraham and his son Isaac. And I, I don't want to go there because we'll talk about it uh, in the next two weeks. But all of this is what Abraham has to look forward to. However, he still has to do his part on what God is asking him to do with circumcision. And he does it. Look at verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those who born in his house or brought up with his money, so it's every servant, it's every person in his house, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. All the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with the money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Okay. Few things here. First of all, this is one of the unique things about preaching through a book of the Bible. Because if we didn't, I would never say, I cannot wait to talk about circumcision. Number two, aren't you thankful for Jesus? Because this is what people had to do when they lived under the old covenant. This is how a man was supposed to show that he and his family were under God's covenant promises that they belonged to him. 
Now, people did practice circumcision before this for various reasons. However, this was required for everyone, every male who called upon the name of the Lord, and it would eventually be for every male Jew from then on. This would be a sign of the, co- of, of the covenant God made with Abraham, just like how God put a rainbow in the sky to show the sign of the covenant that God made with Noah that he would never flood the earth again. Abraham did this when he was 99 years old. Do you think he was serious? He's saying, okay, God, I'm serious. Now, this is strange, though, because what you don't see is an explanation. There's no explanation. He just tells them what to do, and he does it. He knew what it was because historically people had done that before, and there's no, for various reasons, but there's no explanation. Why did God choose this? To show, why didn't God just say, here, have a tattoo, right? Covenant people on your arm. That would have been way better and way less painful. Well, just like everything so far with Abraham, the meaning, it was left unclear. So far, God has told Abraham to go. He doesn't tell him where, but he goes and just follows God. So far, he's told Abraham that he is going to have an offspring, but he doesn't tell him when or how. So, so far, God has told him that he would have land, but he doesn't tell him when or how. And now he tells him to be circumcised. And every male who was to be his offspring and every person that was purchased in their home as a servant, they're also told to do the same thing, but there's no clear explanation as to why. Although Abraham does it anyway. Now, If we were just to read this passage and pray, what would you be left with? Obey God blindly. Let's pray. Do whatever he says without any explanation. Let's pray. But I want to tell you that the topic of circumcision actually goes a lot deeper. The topic of circumcision, although not required for believers today, praise God, does have implications for every person, male and female, who desire to follow Christ. Don't worry, it's not going to get weird. Just stay with me, okay? Later on in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, remember Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. We see Moses talking about the issue of repentance to the, to the Israelites. He's going to tell them what true repentance should look like. Now, notice what he says when he talks about repentance. Deuteronomy chapter 30, we'll start in verse 5. It says, And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you. And you shall, again, obey the voice of the Lord and keep all of his commandments that I command you today. Notice what he's saying. Here, I'm going to give this analogy of repentance, but I'm going to do it strangely by talking about circumcision. 
Okay, he says it's about him circumcising your heart. That's what's going to happen later when you're truly repentant. Not only that, it's not the only place that the Old Testament uses that same idea. Later on, Jeremiah chapter 4, Jeremiah again challenging the Israelites to repent. Look at what he says, Jeremiah 4, verse 3. He says, Break up your uh, fallow ground and sow not among the thorns. Circumcise yourself to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of all the evil of, because of the evil of your deeds. Now, this is a bizarre analogy in terms of repentance. Why use this term? Why does Moses, why does Jeremiah, the prophet, give this analogy? Because it's later going to show up. In the new covenant era with believers today. And it's going to show up when Paul is writing to the Romans. To the Romans who are arrogant and boastful in their own works. Their own ethnicity. And Paul says, no, no, no. Let me explain to you what the true people of God are. And he's arguing that this idea is not just because you're not just a person of God because you're an ethnic Jew or that you attempt to obey the law. That doesn't automatically make you one of the true people of God. It's really about repentance. That's what Paul's going to argue in Romans chapter 2. And, he, and what he does is he does exactly what Moses did when he talked about repentance and what Jeremiah did when he talked about repentance. He talks about the issue of circumcision. Romans chapter 2, I'll start reading in verse 25. He says, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Isn't that weird? They're thinking, okay, this is a physical analogy. He goes, no, 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 I'm talking about something completely different. When you break the law, circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one who is a Jew, now pay attention, for no one who is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. Don't miss the significance of what Paul just said. He says, do you want to know what the people of God are? This is not just a physical act to show that you are, phys- that you are physically a person of God. No, he, he goes as far as to say that those who, uh, there, there are many who are circumcised but disobey God. Physically, they, they are circumcised but they disobey God. And he says, that shows that they're not the people of God. That they rebel against their Lord. And then he goes even further and he says, you want to know who a real Jew is? It's not one who comes from the descendants, physical descendants of Abraham. 
It's really a person who has a circumcised heart. It's a person who's been changed by the gospel. That's how we know who the people of God are. So here's the difference between the covenant that God makes with Abraham and the new covenant that God makes with believers today. Every male under the old covenant who believed in the, in the covenant that God made with Abraham was physically circumcised to prove that they were the people of God. But what Paul says here is different. How do you know who the people of God are? They have a circumcised heart, meaning they've been transformed. Male and female have a circumcised heart. They've been transformed by the gospel. And what we see in in the Old Testament is replaced in the New. What was once a physical sign in the Old Covenant is replaced with a spiritual reality in the New. In the Old Covenant, if you were a Jew and that you believed and you that believed in this truth, you were, a, you were a physical descendant of Abraham, and all the blessings of God applied to you. The men were circumcised to show that them and their family were affirming the promise. In the new covenant, however, if you believe in the finished work of Jesus dying on the pro- cross, living a perfect life, how you display that truth is not a physical act, but a spiritual one. How you display that truth is that you have a circumcised heart. Your life has been drastically changed by the gospel. Which means this. If you want to know who the people of God are, look at the fruit in their life. You used to love sin. Now you hate it. That's a sign that you're a part of the new covenant. That's a sign that you're a part of this promise. You used to be at war war with God. Now you love him. You used to love yourself more than others. Now you love him more than everything else. You used to trust only in yourself and only in your own efforts. Now you trust in Christ and Christ alone. That's the gospel. That's how we know who the people of God are. So yes, there is a sacrifice that is demanded for a person who wants to follow Christ. Yes, his call on your life is the same call that he had for Abraham. He called Abraham to, to walk blameless and to walk in holiness and give your whole life. Yes, that is the call on everyone who desires to follow Christ. But here's the difference in the old covenant. Because of the gospel, you don't see it as something that you have to do. You see it rather because your heart has been transformed as something that you want to do. That's the transformation of the gospel. And so when I see someone who doesn't display a desire for obedience, a desire for the gospel, a desire to love others, a desire to seek repentance desire to extend grace, desire to forgive, and they show patterns of careless sin, I can only come to one conclusion. They don't have a circumcised heart. They never truly repented. They've never been truly made new. And Christianity isn't this physical or just emotional act where you say the magic words and all of your sins go, to we- go, go away. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm fearful because most of the language that's used in Christian culture just isn't biblical what it means to follow Christ. Accept Jesus in your heart. It's one of them. Invite Christ into your life. Pray this prayer. The problem with this is there's no superstitious prayer in the New Testament. 
No one in the New Testament say, walk the aisle and come to the altar and slip up your hand with, you know, everyone bow, every eye, every eye closed and every head bowed. No one looking around. If you pray this prayer, you're magically in the kingdom of God. Nowhere in the New Testament do we see this. No, what do we see in the New Testament? What do we see in the gospel? He says, repent and believe. And when you repent of your sins and you believe in the finished work of Christ, you believe in this promise, you believe in this new covenant that God promises us, your life will be different. And just like in the old covenant, when, Mo, when uh, Abraham and Moses and those who followed were circumcised, that's how they knew they were serious about the sign. How we know that you are serious about this new covenant is that your life has been changed. And I want you to think about this. When, you, when you're asking people to follow Christ, what you're asking them to do, you're asking them to repent of their sins, to take up their cross and follow him. You're asking them to be willing to die for this truth. You're asking them to love him more than anything else. You're asking them, Jesus makes the statement that to follow him, he says to his disciples, you must hate your father and mother in comparison to everything else. That's what he's saying. It's very interesting. Those, when you you ask people to follow Christ, you're asking them to suffer for his name. Those are biblical responses to this message. And why all of a sudden do we feel like it's necessary to avoid counting the cost and, and turn it into a quick emotional, easy response. And as we look at the life of Abraham, can we, we can respond by seeing the cost of what it means to follow Christ. Yes, but therefore we shouldn't be afraid to ask people to position their lives around the gospel. We shouldn't be afraid to ask people to serve. We shouldn't be afraid to ask people to give. We shouldn't be afraid to ask people to live in community with other believers or be transparent or confess sin or walk in repentance. We shouldn't be afraid to ask husbands to, to love their wives or wives to love their husbands better and position their whole lives around the gospel. We shouldn't be afraid to ask people to be in the word or have a consistent prayer life. We shouldn't be afraid to ask people to share the gospel and make disciples and to live their life as a living sacrifice. We shouldn't be afraid of that because that's what the Spirit does in a believer's life. That's what it means to have an uncircumcised heart. That's what the transformation means. And the difference between Abraham's response is that Abraham and others who followed this, sac- uh, others who followed this covenant sacrificed because they had to. The difference between that and us is believers, because of our new heart, We sacrifice willingly, not because we have to, but because we want to. And if you don't want to, perhaps your heart has never really been transformed by the gospel. And so it's my hope this morning that this word, as we look at Abraham and the sacrifice that was required of him, if we look even at the new covenant and what's required of us is to live our lives living sacrifice that we would want to. And maybe if we don't want to, I mean, if we look at the area and the desire of our heart, if we don't want to, and there's not a desire and a push toward loving Christ more and loving others more and spreading the gospel throughout the world, maybe we need to ask ourselves, is my heart really uncircumcised? Is my heart really transformed?
And I say that this morning because as we look at our church, as we look at Greenville and the reality of Greenville, when we're calling people to trust in Christ alone, we're asking them to be willing to suffer and die. And it's costly and it's sacrificial, but it's worth it. And that's the beauty of the gospel. So this morning, when we evaluate our hearts and we see this morning that this sacrifice, what God is calling us to when we follow him, is worth it. Let me pray.